Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to the last day of Radio Days Africa 18. We've had a bumper three days so far, and today we kick off with looking at new spaces and interesting things happening in audio. Um, two years ago, we asked Arthur to join us. He came back last year, and in fact, um, one of the guys in one of the other sessions was so nervous from Europe, they didn't want to speak at the same time as Arthur because he said he's kind of like the Microsoft guy of South Africa, or the Apple guy of South Africa. Um, so without further ado, for the third time, back by popular demand, uh, Arthur Goldsack from Worldwide Works. Thank you, thank you. Thanks so much, uh, I appreciate you having me uh, back. On a cold morning like this, I hope you're going to have some heated conversation around what's coming um, in the future. But I want to um, ask you a quick question. Does anyone here know who Costas Lambrianos is? Anybody? Anybody heard of the name? Well, Costas is the, is the sort of silent name behind a technology that all of us appreciate very much, but we're never aware of the fact that he actually makes it uh, available to us. And that is the hand dryers, the heated hand dryers in our bathrooms. If you look on the on, on the actual gadget, you'll see it's supplied by Costas Labrianos. But no one knows who he is, and yet he's so important in our lives and brings so much comfort. And that's uh, almost symbolic of the technology that's emerging now around media. There is so much amazing technology being provided that we take for granted and that is reshaping our lives and reshaping the media life, uh, our media lives, and we're simply not aware of where it comes from because it almost lands in our laps automatically without us thinking about it. And we'll come back to that thought at the end of the uh, presentation when I give you a glimpse of what the media future is going to be. But first, those who attended my talks in the last two years will know that I always go back 100 years to show you what inventions or disruptive moments occurred a um, hundred years ago at any given time in modern history. And this is to illustrate that we don't have to be in the 21st century to experience disruption. So um, I know Lance will remember uh, 1918 uh, yeah, because he was there shaping the, the media future back then, but the rest of you might not remember. That's the year the first grocery bag with handles was introduced. And that was important because the year before that, the first self-service supermarket was introduced, but people had great difficulty taking uh, the goods home with them. So you saw massive advances in retail happening at that stage. The first three-color traffic lights, because with two-color traffic lights, people would um, not realize they have to stop as the lights about to turn from green to red. Yellow uh, actually solved a lot of traffic uh, chaos. British women got to vote, very momentous because Although New Zealand got the vote 20 years earlier, it didn't create that shockwave around the world that um, uh, pushed equality um, and democracy in its true form through so many um, countries. And then Max Planck was recognized for quantum theory. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics uh, that year. And why that is so significant today is because right now, computing is about to be transformed by quantum theory. So a technology or a theory that was acknowledged 100 years ago is finally about to make a massive impact on the world of computing. 
and also in cybersecurity, it might solve the problems we have today with this arms race between protecting us from hackers and the hackers themselves getting ahead of us because they always are one step ahead because we don't know what they're going to come up with next. And um, quantum cryptography, it is believed, will be completely hacker-proof. Nothing is ultimately hacker-proof. To be hacker-proof, you've got to put your phone and your computer in a cupboard and never switch it on. But hopefully quantum cryptography will take us a long way there. And of course, the most disruptive event of uh, 1918 for South Africans was the birth of Nelson Mandela. So you can see how anything that you look at 100 years ago that was being invented or transforming any industry has reverberations uh, down uh, the decades. But the important point here is that disruption is not new. It's been with us uh, for a while. Oops. We are having a slight technology problem. No. Let's see if this works. Okay, so I want to show you one of the great examples of disruption in Africa. This was the equivalent of a spaza shop in Nairobi in 2011. This was not just a spaza shop, it was your typical electronics store in Nairobi. And across much of Africa, this is how you'd buy your electronics. If you look very closely, uh, <clears throat> you'll see some of the products on sale are uh, data cables, um, uh, PS2 games, and chipping. That's where they hack into your phone and take your network-locked phone and open it up to other networks, and various other illegal activities uh, via your phone. So it was a one-stop shop for all your electronic uh, needs. But meanwhile, just two years before this photo was taken, an innovation arrived in Kenya called M-Pesa, which is a mobile money transfer. And in the next five years, it completely transformed the Kenyan economy. Up to that point, fewer than 10% of Kenyans had access to financial services, any kind of financial instrument whatsoever. Today, it's something like 80% of Kenyan adults have a financial instrument thanks to mobile money, not just in PESA, but all its competitors as well. That's what it evolved into by around 2014, 2015, where you could not just shop with uh, M-Pesa with your cell phone, but you could buy any form of ticketing, whether an event uh, ticket or uh, an air ticket even, via your cell phone. And that made Kenya the African leader in perceived innovation. And why I say perceived innovation is because it's, while Nairobi is a hotbed of startups and innovation, in fact, the real uh, quantity of that innovation and the quantity of startups is dwarfed by what's happening in South Africa. But thanks to the Impesa halo effect, we have the impression that Kenya is way ahead of the rest of uh, the continent. But what's important about what Impesa did is how it disrupted the existing economy. And when we talk about disruption there, we're not talking about some disrupting something that worked. It was disrupting something that didn't work. And the most recent innovation with M-Pesa is that companies can now even pay salaries with M-Pesa. Um, you can imagine how this transforms the ability to enhance financial inclusion 
across uh, the continent. It's been a massive success across East Africa and spreading to other countries as well, not necessarily through M-Pesa. But M-Pesa failed dismally in South Africa, as did MTN Money, which is a big success in Ghana, for example, and in Uganda. But in South Africa, it didn't work. Why? Because we had financial inclusion. We had financial services that performed those functions quite adequately for most people. You would think that mobile money transfer would be a more efficient way of doing it. But in fact, to disrupt a market, you can't just come along with something that's better than what we had before. The dynamics of the market dictate what will disrupt that particular market. Now we come to 2018. And I'm going to introduce you to, I wonder if I shouldn't just do this on the machine. Let me do this. Um, I'm going to take you through some of the major innovations that were launched or displayed at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas at the beginning of the year, because that is the launch pad for many of the technologies that will emerge over not just the next um, six to nine months, but over the next two years. Um, one actually only has to attend CES every second year to get a, a real sense of uh, the roadmap of the future. But this year, there was a massive amount of groundbreaking technologies or uses of existing technology. Probably the most dramatic was the LG canyon of TVs, where you walk through this canyon of connected TVs and you had the sense of walking through a forest and then walking along a waterfall in the space of about four minutes experiencing a 24-hour day. And it was so immersive and so realistic that you really had the sense that you'd been transported elsewhere. So when people talk about immersive technologies and they're focused on virtual reality and putting a helmet on people's heads, they miss the point that immersion isn't only about putting yourself in a machine, but it's also about walking through an experience. And that is one of the key forms of entertainment and media of um, the coming decade, is the ability to immerse people in an experience, regardless of what technology that is or what the experience is. But to come down to the TV set itself, this was the new Panasonic TVs that were launched at uh, CES this year. You won't see them in South Africa in a hurry, but what was revolutionary about these, they were the first to support a new protocol called HDR10, um, High Dynamic Range, I think it stands for 10 Plus, sorry. And what 10 Plus does in, inside a TV is it optimizes every single scene that appears, every frame of a video of a broadcast to uh, present the, the most realistic colors or the most vivid or dynamic colors that are possible in each of those frames. So it's automatically enhancing the image frame by frame to provide the most realistic experience yet on a TV screen. But also important about HDR10+, it allows metadata to be inserted inside the uh, content. So while it's not visible, it's in fact accessible. So if you have the right technology, the right uh, TV, you can actually extract information out of any scene. That is, if that information has been inserted into the scene by the producers of the content. So the potential of content is massive. What one might argue, though, is that it's too much. Um, no one's going to be able to absorb 
that amount of experience and that amount of information on top of the uh, experience. But then they would have said that before we have the scenario where we're watching a movie, we're on a tablet and we're on, our, on, on WhatsApp, on, on, a, on a phone, uh, commenting to friends what we're seeing on TV and meanwhile um, sharing um, or responding to email on our tablet. So this almost represents that kind of multi-channel mind that we are evolving into. <clears throat> the, the other dramatic advance in TV technology was illustrated by the fact that at the high sense stand, the new TVs were almost in the corner of the stands. And what really was highlighted was that you could ask Alexa anything via the TV. In other words, these were Alexa-enabled TVs that you could control by voice. And what I think is so important about that is not that you can talk to your TV, but you no longer have to learn how the controls of that TV work. You don't have to find the manual or you don't have to find a 10-year-old kid to show you how to set up the TV. You just talk to the TV and tell it uh, what you want. And uh, this is uh, significant for um, a number of reasons. It's part of a voice-enabled future. What we're starting to see in a range of technologies is that voice enablement. It's either Alexa being built into it or it's uh, Google Assistant. So you say either Alexa, which is a wake word for any um, Amazon-powered device, or Hey Google, which is the Google uh, wake word. And unfortunately, that can be hacked quite uh, easily. So there was an example um, last year, for example, where an ad campaign, I think this Burger King ran an ad campaign where they built into it um, wake words that would wake up people's uh, home assistants, their Amazon Echo um, or their Google Home uh, devices, and get them to order uh, from Burger King. It was just to demonstrate the technology, but it was a massive scandal in the United States, and it forced um, Google in particular to um, optimize its algorithms to prevent TVs from activating it accidentally or on purpose. But probably the most important thing of all at uh, CES this year was those two um, digits, 5G. So this was the Intel stand at the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, stand is a bit of a misnomer. It was more like the Intel city. If you look back into the uh, background, all those neon squares are all part of the Intel stand. And it's divided into separate little villages. And in each village, you had a demonstration of a different category of technology. And the most dramatic to me was the 5G demonstration. And this person here is busy demonstrating how over one 5G connection, in other words, a, a mobile wireless connection using 5G, she could stream a 4K video, in other words, double high-definition uh, video, at the same time as a high-definition virtual reality movie all over that one connection, and to quote her, with bandwidth to spare. There's a 1.6 gigabit per second uh, connection. And she was illustrating what you can do with a 1.6 gigabit per second connection. So 5G was finally uh, ratified, or the protocol was ratified at the end of last year. And we've only started seeing equipment for 5G beginning to emerge. Vodacom just announced their first trial of uh, 5G in, in the past week. So it's still going to take a while before it really comes to market. It'll take even longer for the regulator in this country, of course, to um, 
allocate 5G spectrum. And if, if the past is anything to go by, it could take us another five to eight years before uh, that happens. In fact, there's certain um, co connectivity protocols like WiMAX that have never really been um, allocated by uh, the regulator. But we hope 5G will spur the regulator to move a bit faster because the rest of the world is going to move rapidly to 5G precisely because of this kind of capability. And once we do have 5G, that is going to transform the ability of any media operator to deliver content via uh, the mobile device. Not necessarily on the phone, but using the phone as a conduit to deliver content to your smart TV, uh, for example. So 5G will also revolutionize content in the coming years. And then from the Consumer Electronics Show, we move on to the Mobile World Congress in uh, Barcelona. That happens at the end of February every year. It's the ground zero of mobile innovation uh, globally. Uh, but what we saw this year wasn't so, so mobile as trying to show off. This is um, a typical scene at Mobile World Congress. A lot of the stands have virtual reality experiences to um, attract people to the stand and to give them a, a sense of uh, what the future of entertainment is going to be. But there's a fundamental flaw with uh, this picture. I'm sure half of you in the audience have already spotted that. Any, any volunteers? What's wrong with this picture? Exactly, cables. Every one of those VR devices is connected via cable to a computer. Because right now, with the state of virtual reality, you cannot actually deliver a photorealistic um, experience in streaming video or streaming virtual reality uh, content adequately without using wires connected to a computer. 5G will change that. 5G will make it possible to deliver that experience. But for the next few years, VR is still going to be stuck to uh, wires. Yes, you have the Samsung Gear and the Oculus Rift and so on that you can connect just to a cell phone. But the experience of that is hardly a realistic experience. Um, I find myself getting more and more frustrated with all the pix pixelation I experience in the, um, what I wouldn't call them the cheaper VR headsets because they're not exactly cheap, but let's say the ones that are not exorbitantly expensive. Um, just deliver pixelation that distracts you from the experience for a while. Eventually you get into it and you forget about that. But VR is not yet ready for prime time. 5G will make it ready for prime time. Where will your smartphone go? Well, there's a lot of um, theory and a lot of predictions that the smartphone will disappear. And the reason is because of this technology. This is smart clothing. And this is just an example of smart clothing where almost every element of that suit has got some form of electronics built into it. And in the future, you won't need a handset. You'll have an earphone. You might have um, a lapel a mic that's not as obtrusive um, as this one, but that's built into your, um, your, your collar or placed over your throat. And then your, if you wear glasses, you'll have some kind of uh, gesture recognition tool built into that as well. If you don't wear glasses, you could have gesture recognition built into your earphones, into a shoulder piece, whatever the case uh, might be. And the idea is that you'll be able to transmit any visuals onto um, a table in front of you, onto a wall, or into thin air if you're wearing glasses. So it's overlaid in the form of augmented reality 
on your glasses and it looks like you're looking at a computer screen or a cell phone screen but only you uh, can see it and then you use gesture control and voice control to um, manage it. That's the thinking of the future and smart clothes will help to make that future possible. And then finally the other big trend at uh, Mobile World Congress was robots and this is Pepe the robot that you might have um, seen in other formats. I think last year I showed a picture of myself talking to uh, Pepe at a conference somewhere. Pepe is a very engaging robot. When you say to Pepe, hi Pepe, he says, hello human. And suddenly you realize that if you have a, a robot waiter like uh, Pepe, um, it would be far more engaging than many of the human waiters that we deal with um, in restaurants. Certainly that's what they discovered in Japan. And there are now something like 20,000 pepper units um, operating in fast food restaurants in Japan. South Africa just got its first pepper a few months ago. Nedbank brought one in. And the idea is to show how a robot can be used as a customer interface. It's already been successfully proven in Japan by insurance companies. They found that people are more willing to give personal information to a robot than to a human being. So you might well find Pepper starting to intrude into various niche um, areas in South Africa. It won't take over from waiters and other um, forms of, of uh, human labor because the um, uh, labor crisis in this country simply won't allow uh, for that. But certainly where it works and where it makes sense and where there's, sh there's a shortage of human skills or where humans don't do the job quite as well, you're going to start seeing robots like Pepper. Becoming, beginning to emerge. The most interesting thing to me about Mobile World Congress this year though was this scene at the launch of the new Samsung Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus. What stood out here was how important Wi-Fi was. We have been led to believe that we're the only country where we Wi-Fi poor and wherever South Africans go in the world they're looking for free Wi-Fi and we assume everyone else has got roaming data um, to spare and they don't need free Wi-Fi but in fact free Wi-Fi was one of the biggest demands at Mobile World Congress and Samsung made a virtue of it by punting their Wi-Fi connectivity heavily. Unfortunately no one is able to cater for 4,000 uh, journalists uh, trying to uh, suck data down into their phones at the same time at a launch like this so even there the Wi-Fi fell over and it felt almost comforting to know that they experienced the same Wi-Fi headaches in uh, Barcelona as they do in Johannesburg. What all this tells you is that there isn't only one next big thing. There are multiple next big things. And this slide summed it up for me. This was from the Cisco Live conference uh, in Barcelona at the beginning of uh, February. And they took the World Economic Forum uh, presentations and uh, predictions and they encapsulated it into this slide to show the major business and geopolitical changes that we can expect in the next decade on the one side and on the other side the major technology changes we can expect. And there were no less than eight major categories of technology that is going to be utterly transformed in the coming decade. That's going to be utterly disruptive as well. From AI at the top to uh, data and advanced analytics at the bottom. A lot of them are interrelated but they're also all distinct. And um, at least half of those are going to have a major impact on the world of media. So let's look at what comes next. And I'm going to refer again to that Cisco Live conference. They, they suggested that by 2030, 
LinkedIn jobs would typically, sorry, before we get to LinkedIn jobs, um, what they predicted would come in the next decade. They predicted all the way through to 2055, but for the next 10 years, these are some of their key predictions. Flying cars. We've had this prediction for 100 years. H.G. Wells spoke about flying cars, but for the first time, it's looking real. Why? Because Dubai has commissioned flying taxis to go live in 2022. Uber has demonstrated drones that can carry people and that are almost ready for market. Licensing of those are going, is going to be a problem. The regulator is not going to like flying taxis and um, human-carrying drones, but the technology is now here, and we're going to see it emerging in limited circumstances by 2022. Smartphones will disappear in the way that I described um, earlier. This is a prediction by Cisco that that will happen by 2025. 2027, text by thinking. This is a very scary one, but already for the past six or seven years, they've been demonstrating the use of brainwave-controlled messaging in medical uh, applications. And they're starting to move these applications into, into general communication as well. In fact, um, around uh, 20 years ago, I don't know if Anton remembers in PC Review in, uh, in, the, in, in the Mail and Guardian back in the 90s, um, I did a review of a, a skiing game using brainwaves. And you uh, plugged this thing, looked like headphones, over your head, connected it to the computer, and then you had to move through a skiing uh, slope with only your thoughts. And it actually worked, but you had to focus very hard. You had to concentrate very hard. It was very clunky. It wasn't an enjoyable experience, but it was quite a dazzling um, experience. It was one of those moments in Peace Review where um, I really felt this is the future beginning to arrive. But then nothing happened for the next 20 years. But now we hear that in uh, the medical world, they've been experimenting quite heavily with it and starting to prove that it actually works. And they expect in the next 10 years that we'll all be able to use a mainstream form of text by thinking. But I just have to warn you, uh, drunk texting is going to take on a whole new meaning <laughs> by 2027. very scary. I think you're going to have brain hacking going on, and we'll get back to that in a moment as well. Um, by 2028, they expect a, a complete simulation of the human brain, which means they're going to be able to test um, therapies, um, medical procedures, but uh, also communications uh, formats using an artificial uh, brain. This isn't the same as artificial intelligence. This is simulating the full workings of a human brain. And you can imagine um, the implications of that for the future of computing as well. These are the job titles they expect to see on LinkedIn by the early 2030s. And um, some of them are obvious. Avatar managers I find interesting. Everyone's going to have an avatar, in, in other words, some kind of um, co computer-generated version of themselves that will act for them in the cyber world. Body part makers you already have, people using 3D printing to make prosthetic uh, arms and legs. Vertical farmers, uh, in fact, literally yesterday, I connected with um, the CEO of a company called Aero Farms, who is based in New York and is leading the charge 
for vertical farming, creating a farming environment in high rises. And um, I'm trying to set up an interview with him to get more information and detail about exactly where they're doing it and what the impact has been. So hopefully, if I'm back next year, I'll um, update you on what I've learned uh, from him. But this looks like the 2030s, but in fact, all of this is already happening today. Nanomedics, nanomedicine is happening today. Waste data handlers, we don't call them that yet, but the idea of e-waste is already a massive idea. And the amount of data that we produce that um, is filling up storage um, in the cloud uh, globally is massive. Someone's going to have to handle um, all the, um, let's say, decay of that data in the coming decade. And then after Donald Trump, hopefully there'll be an after Donald Trump, we're certainly going to need climate change reversal specialists. These are all jobs that are in the making today. What Cisco is saying is that by the early 2030s, they'll be common jobs. They'll be as common as programmers um, and the like. These are some of the people we'll be hiring, we expect, if we're still around um, in the early 2030s. Um, I think a chief trust officer is something we already uh, need in almost any organization that handles data. Data detectives uh, to find out who is doing what with our data. Facebook could certainly do with a data detective or two. IoT filter technicians. IoT, the Internet of Things, means that will be sensors everywhere. How do you make sense of all the sensors? How do you filter out um, the uh, data coming from different generations of sensors, different levels of security in different uh, sensors? Artificial intelligence identity uh, managers. All these AIs are going to start producing artificial beings, and someone's going to have to manage those beings in the business world. And then finally, thanks to all this drunk thinking that's going on, we're going to need brain auditors um, once everyone starts being hacked um, in their text by thinking. It all sounds futuristic, but it all begins now. And one of the reasons it's starting now is because artificial intelligence has broken out. We don't realize it yet, but it's out of the lab. It's out there. And I'll show you why. This is a slide I showed you uh, last year. This is the number of artificial intelligence startups that were receiving funding from venture, from venture capitalists as of April 2017. It was something like um, 1,700 of these startups, and they were receiving around $13.5 billion in funding. In just the next eight months, look what happened. By December last year, by the end of last year, there were more than 2,000 AI startups receiving $27 billion. In just eight months, the funding from venture capitalists for AI had doubled. And it's across numerous categories, if you look uh, closely. Anything from speech-to-speech -speech translation through to uh, virtual assistants, smart robots, um, and the like. Every one of those categories has got hundreds of startups of people coming up with new ideas, new uses of artificial intelligence. There's no question it's going to transform the world in the coming years. How does that translate in South Africa? We conducted a, a research project called uh, the Mobile Corporation in South Africa with CISPRO. And we asked, among other things, about emerging technologies Current use, intended use, and um, why people would not take it up. So let's start with artificial intelligence, which 
we use big data um, and machine learning as a proxy for artificial intelligence in this country. 13% of corporations in this country said they were using artificial intelligence already. When, asked, um, when we asked the rest of them whether they intended to use it, 63% of the rest said they will be using artificial intelligence in the near future. And for those not using it, we asked if cost was the reason, and 100% said cost was not the reason. So the only reason companies are not using artificial intelligence in the coming years is where it doesn't fit in with their strategy or their business models and the like. But for those where it does um, have any relevance to their business, all of them are going to embrace artificial intelligence. So you're going to see a um, meeting of those thousands of, of AI startups and these corporations in South Africa will all see the importance of AI uh, for the near future. The last circle, by the way, is if you currently use it, you plan to increase your usage, and three-quarters of those currently using it plan to increase it. But it's still for a very small base. Then the Internet of Things, that is connected devices, uh, collecting data from the environment, um, it being shared or being transmitted via the cloud and being analyzed and used for a wide variety of purposes. 66%, two-thirds of companies are using it. It turns out South Africa is in the lead globally in terms of readiness for IoT take-up. The reason for that is because of the peculiar circumstances in this country, and that is because every car that is insured in this country has a tracking device in it, and that is the Internet of Things. We used to call it telemetry, then we called it machine-to-machine -machine communications, now it's called IoT, but we've been having it as they say, for a long time. The rest of the world is only beginning to discover it. And fleet management in particular is an area in which South Africa leads the world. So that, that explains why IoT has such high take-up. And those not using it, 84% plan to use IoT. So the use case and the business case is there. Blockchain is the big buzzword of the moment, very low uptake at this stage in South Africa, only 3% of corporates saying they're using blockchain. Those are typically financial services companies that are experimenting with it. And an example is uh, Strait, the stock exchange company that is experimenting with blockchain for verification of um, uh, share trades and share certificates. That's one example. The Reserve Bank has a working group that is exploring the use of blockchain in um, financial settlements. So it's becoming common in that particular sector. Over time, a further 40%, or rather 40% of the rest, plan to use blockchain in some form or another. But when you ask them whether cost is the reason for not using it, those who aren't going to use it, almost half say cost is the main factor. And it's not the cost of the technology itself, but the cost of the skills for that technology. So this tells us immediately there's a massive shortage of blockchain skills. So if you're looking for a career path that is going to pay off um, in the short term, blockchain is definitely the way to go. And then virtual reality and augmented reality, also very low uptake, 13%, similar to artificial intelligence and a similar level of planned uptake, 43%. But when we ask, is uh, cost the reason for not using it? Um, only 10% say cost is not the reason. So what looks like an expensive technology now 
is not expected to be expensive in the future. But those currently using it, if we asked them if they plan to increase their usage, half said no. So clearly the business case and the use case for augmented reality and virtual reality is not yet here. This is despite the fact that in specific use cases it's getting very real. This is uh, Skip Rizzo. He's at the University of Southern California. He heads up a division of uh, medical um, innovation and specializing in the use of virtual reality for treating post-traumatic stress disorder, mainly amongst veterans, and they've proven the technology amongst um, military veterans, but now they're taking it into a broader environment as well. For any form of post-traumatic stress disorder, they're finding that virtual reality has a massive success rate, something like a 75% success rate in uh, curing people. So in medical environments and also in education, VR and AR has hit uh, the mainstream. So despite what I said earlier, if you look at specific verticals, specific niches, then VR is real. This is um, at the Dell Technologies World Conference in May. That's Skip Rizzo on that side. You can see the publicity pictures um, are very often um, not quite um, in line with reality because um, you don't have makeup artists uh, assisting you on stage. But he's in conversation with a gentleman that some of you might recognize. Does anyone know who the guy on the right is? Sorry? Westworld, yeah. I think it's Jeffrey Wright from uh, Westworld. He plays the guy who's both a robot and a human being. That's not a spoiler, um, because uh, if you don't know by now, then someone's going to tell you. And essentially, they were talking about the robot-human interface and highlighting the uses of VR and robotics in the business world and in mainstream uh, uses. Which brings us to robotics. 6% of South African corporates are using some form of robotics, um, Nedbank being the first in financial services, but we're finding it quite heavily used in mining and in uh, manufacturing. Obviously, assembly lines are often ro um, robotic assembly lines. But of those not using it, 47%, almost half, said that they plan to use robotics in the future. So the robots are coming. For those not using it, is cost the reason? And almost unanimously, 97% of those who don't plan to use it say cost is the reason. So robotics will be expensive. It's only going to be the big organizations will roll it out in a serious way. So let's move on to the small business. And I want to just show you a, a trend that is reshaping um, the business world, certainly for small businesses in South Africa. This was the connectivity landscape for small businesses from 2003 to 2007. And what I love about this graph, it shows a perfect replacement of one technology by another in a very short time. So in 2003, more than 60% of SMEs used dial-up to access the internet. I don't know if any of you remember dial-up, aside from Lance. Um, that was the year also that ADSL was launched in South Africa, and something like 3% of SMEs were using ADSL at the time we ran that survey. By 2007, um, dial-up had dropped to close to 10%, and ADSL had risen to well over 50%. And the following year, Dial-up finally reached its um, 
potential amongst SMEs. 73% of SMEs, sorry, ADSL, 73% of SMEs were using ADSL in 2009. And why I show 2009 specifically is because it remained at that level for the next six years. Until 2015, 73% of SMEs in this country used ADSL as the primary form of connectivity. And then something began shifting. In 2015, fiber arrived for the small business. So not quite fiber to the home, but certainly fiber to the business. And that year, 7% of SMEs said they were using fiber. At that point, ADSL was still holding its own. Even those that moved to fiber were still sticking to ADSL because they didn't know if fiber would work. But by this year, look what happened. 25% of SMEs using fiber and ADSL had dropped to 59%. So you're beginning to see fiber due to ADSL, what ADSL did to um, dial up in, in the early part of the century. And this is highly significant for the media world because fiber, in effect, has got unlimited capacity. It's constrained only by the equipment you put on either end. The um, pr service provider can actually flip a switch to increase your uh, speed, for example, from uh, 4 megs per second, which is the cheapest form of uh, fiber, to 100 megs per second. And every service provider can do that. There are some that can even give you 1 gig uh, per second. It's expensive, but it's available if you want it. And then the throughput that you're able to get, the capacity, the data caps you can get, are unlimited. Most of the more cost-effective um, services have unlimited uh, data. This is compared to ADSL where you had a three um, gig limit per month, and if you were very lucky, you were getting maybe um, a three meg per second uh, download uh, speed. So you can see with that kind of capacity and that kind of speed that it's going to transform the media world as well. And this is the other trend that is going to transform the media world, which is the uptake of cloud. And this was, again, asking SMEs in 2015, if they didn't use cloud, were they intending to use cloud in the following year? Look at the yellow bars in 2015. 5% said, yes, they'll definitely use cloud in the, in the uh, coming year. That is 2015. When we asked the same question this year, 60% said they're going to use the cloud. So now uh, take those trends together the uptake of uh, cloud and the uptake of uh, fiber uh, by small businesses. And you can see that fiber connected uh, to the cloud is going to result in a massive transformation. And this is a very um, summarized picture of what the cloud actually looks like. Now, I'm not expecting you to read everything on here, but this is the Amazon Web Services bouquet of services. You can find this uh, table online. I'm happy to share it with you as well. But if you go through it, you can see the massive range of services that AWS is making available for instant use by anyone on a rental basis and on a pay-as-you-go basis. Analytics, app services, mobile services, deve development and operations, IoT, enterprise apps, gaming, security, account management, any kind of activity, any kind of business you can imagine, they almost have it available to you to download and start using instantly without having any infrastructure, without um, having in-depth expertise. This is really the picture 
that shows us what the transformation of the media is going to be um, in the coming years. Because you won't have to construct your systems, you won't have to configure your services. You're going to be able to download the, um, the framework of what you want and all you will have to add is the content, the personalities and the like. And in the future, with uh, avatars and um, artificial intelligence uh, virtual assistants, you might even be able to rent the personalities of the Amazon cloud as well. Microsoft is trying to do something similar with its Azure cloud, but these guys are launching three new features every single day. And every few days, one of those features is a media-oriented feature, uh, feature. So what you're seeing in this um, slide or in this chart is in fact the ability to transform different aspects of the media every single day. And new ideas, new approaches to media businesses are going to emerge out of this from people sitting in a bedroom or a garage or on the toilet even. You can sit on the loo going through this, downloading, renting, launching a new media operation. And what that finally boils down to, my final word on this is, that you're not going to start up a media business in the future. You'll simply download it. Thank you very much. We'll take three questions from the floor for Arthur, if there are any questions. Carlito. Thanks, Tim. Always great. Uh, participating or viewing your presentations, Arthur, thank you so much. So here's a quick question. <coughs> Excuse me. So the DOC presented yesterday, we're all following the ICT policy, particularly on broadband. I think you know where we're going with this. So I'm from media, SABC. So the infrastructure of the rollout of broadband linked to the NDP, you know, the National Development Plan 2030, which simply states free broadband for all South African citizens. That's what I read. Um, if my English is good. So I don't know if you know anything, uh, the latest developments about that or, or, or any thoughts around that because um, coming from you, particularly your last slide, <laughs> really kicks our wind out. And from where we're sitting, um, the future is extremely scary. Um, when I look into my crystal ball, my greatest threat seems to be the telcos. I might be working for a telco next. Um, you know, telcos are moving in and becoming media businesses. So back to the NDB plan. Um, I don't know if there's much discussion amongst business heads in the country. Are we looking at that? Is that really rolling out or is it just, you know, a fancy strategy? Thanks. Well, first to answer your implied question, um, you're not in as much trouble as many other operations because you have content. Content is still the differentiator. You still need to produ produce content. Uh, the question is whether these online services will help people produce content more easily, cheaply, and uh, quickly. But we know that a kid sitting in Eisner, uh, a good-looking kid taking off his shirt and cracking jokes, uh, is, uh, is the potentially um, the disruptor of tomorrow. I'm talking about Casper Lee, who created a media empire out of just that kind of um, approach. So. Um, you're not necessarily entirely safe, but having all that content gives you a tremendous buffer uh, to the future. In terms of uh, government policy, 
I'm highly skeptical every time I see one of these uh, policy documents because we've had numerous policy documents that haven't resulted in uh, any benefit for uh, the public. And one simple example is the cost of data for the poor. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the data must fall uh, movement because it's a blunt instrument which is easily deflected by the operators. The operators only need to point to the average cost of data and how much it's fallen every year. At any time, they can say, we've dropped the cost of data by 44% in the past year, for example. That's a typical uh, percentage. What they're not pointing out is that um, that is because data for the rich has fallen dramatically. If you can buy a big bundle, then you can get very cheap data. Data for the poor, where it's coming off the airtime, typically, is incredibly expensive still. It's typically between one rand and two rand a meg, whereas people buying bundles are paying between five cents and ten cents a meg, and sometimes even uh, less. And it's a very simple, a very simple um, act for ICASA to declare that you cannot charge more than 20 cents a meg for data, for example. That very simple um, decision or announcement would transform the data economy in this country but they don't have the political will uh, to do it. So to give free internet access to the entire population, it's a pipe dream. It's an ideal. We'd love to see it, but I can't see how they will do it if they can't even put a cap on the cost of mobile data for the poorest of the poor. Good time for the session has run out. Arthur, thank you very much again. You mentioned in your presentation that if you get the opportunity to come back next year, you'd like to update some of the slides. So I'd like to provisionally book you for the 5th of July, 2019. Ouch. Ladies and gentlemen, Arthur Goldstock from Worldwide Works. Thank you.